Welcome to the Work Minus Podcast. We talk about what we need to drop from the way we think about work and what we need to replace it with to be prepared for the future. Go to workminus.com to see a transcript of this episode, more podcasts, articles, and a newsletter that connects you to the best ideas about work. All right, enjoy the show. Well, welcome back to Work Minus, where we start the conversations you need to have to get to a better future of work. Today, our guest is Bridget Schulte. She's a journalist and author of the book, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. This episode is called Work Minus the Ideal Worker. Hi, Bridget. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you doing? Doing very well. I was driven to your book because it's a fun topic for us. We love talking about time, productivity, workplace, and different things. But I have to say, like, I was really compelled by the topic, but your writing style in the book was, was amazing how you start off and you really pull us into this feeling that so many of us have that we're feeling pulled in so many different directions with our time. And I love what you wrote for that. So thanks for the book. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you know, I have to say it was really hard uh, to write that way. I'm, uh, you know, uh, trained as a journalist and I worked at the Washington Post for many years and writing kind of in the first person was just never something that you did or never something trained to do. Uh, so I had a really hard time writing that. And um, uh, yeah, I, I started writing a, a magazine story. And honest to God, the day that it came out, I was curled up in the fetal position. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I should never have done that. People are going to have just like shared my dirty laundry with the world. People are going to know I'm not all, you know, you yeah. have this face in the world, right? And I basically blew it all. And so funny, my husband looked at me curled up. I didn't want to get out of bed. He just goes, too late now. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's out there. It's so vulnerable that I feel like I was writing it, like the way you wrote it, just the, it came out so, so nicely. So, so tell us about how you got so interested in time. How did this become a passion for you? Well, I hate to say, you know, how did I get interested in time? <laughs> most who've known me most of my life will laugh at that because I was always like the little kid running out the door late and, mm-hmm. you know, shooting socks in hand and the toothbrush in my mouth to get to school. So I've always had a challenge with time. I'm not very, you know, uh, I can't, I really work hard at being punctual and not very punctual. Um, so I've always struggled with time. And then, um, you know, where the idea for the book came from, I, I never really set out to write this book and I actually sort of fought against it for the longest time. And it all really started, um, uh, I was part of this group at the Washington Post at the time, and we were looking at our readership numbers and seeing that things were really starting to change. And when what they called the, they even called it the quote unquote frenetic frat family um, mm. demographic, you know, people with young kids or people with increasingly, um, you know, needing to care for aging parents or relatives, you know, people who had, who were like most people, you're trying to work and you've got a whole lot of caregiving responsibilities and seeing this huge drop in readership numbers, particularly among women. And so the powers that be were really worried, like, why are we losing women readers and what can we do about it? So I got appointed to this women readers committee and we were supposed to figure out, you know, why were women not reading the newspaper and what could we do to have them read the newspaper? And so being reporters, you know, we wanted to find some data. It's like, well, what does the data show? Why wouldn't women read the newspaper? And all of us kind of looked around and rolled our eyes. It's like, well, they're really busy. That's why. <laughs> well, because, you know, we weren't even reading the newspaper in the morning and we worked for the newspaper, you know, because mornings, if you've got caregiving responsibilities, are crazy. You know, you get kids running every which way. You know, maybe your mom's calling. She's got a doctor's appointment. You know, you just, you're lucky to get out the door. I can't tell you how many times I would go out with like baby barf on my shoulder or like a snow white 
sticker that I didn't realize was on and go for a big interview. <laughs> I actually did that and to, you know, with this, the DA in Baltimore and had to take the Snow White sticker off <laughs> That's good. So you, you kind of like, you're always feeling like you're just running late and behind and and I was feeling just totally inadequate all the time, like never doing as much work as I could or should or sh- whatever or expected to, but also not being the kind of, you know, calm and present parent. I just kind of felt like I was in this constant you know, tornado of no time. And so in the middle of this, this uh, uh, reader, women readers group, we said, okay, well, let's get the data to show how busy women are. And so not knowing anything, I'm like, I don't know, I'll, I'll look for it. And I just Googled, you know, busy women, time, <laughs> mothers. And then I found this whole group of uh, researchers that I've since become um, really, you know, read a lot of their work, but I didn't know anything about it. They're sociologists, economists, and psychologists who study how we spend our time. There's a whole like international association of time use researchers. They actually research time. And, you know, we've got in, in the United States, we've got the American Time Use Survey that the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out every year. And so there's all this wonderful data that really helps you, you know, kind of gives you this bigger picture of how people spend their time. So I called this one researcher up who is, you know, kind of a pioneer in the field. He's known as Father Time. And I'm like, oh, we're writing this, you know, report about how women aren't reading the newspaper. We figured they're busy. And he just goes, you're wrong. Women are busy they have 30 hours of leisure a week and then they've got 40 hours of leisure everybody you know he basically was saying everybody's just a whiny you know idiot and people had all this free time and they just felt busy and i'm like you are out of your mind i don't have 30 (laughs) hours of leisure and so he said yes you do do this time study with me and i will show you where your leisure is and honest to god that is how this whole project started is i I basically was challenged (laughs) to do a study because this guy wanted to show me that I had leisure for time. And so that led to me tracking my time, um, which was really difficult and really revelatory. Uh, but it also, you know, I ended up writing a magazine story for the Washington Post magazine, the, uh, you know, being curled up in the fetal position, not wanting to share my dirty lawn with everybody. And then that ultimately led to writing a book. And the one thing that when um, when it came to thinking about how about the book I did, I fought it for um, for about a year after the magazine piece came out because I just thought there's nothing more to say. You know, it's busy and it sucks, and I don't think it can change. And it was really, and yet people kept coming back. It's like we need you to write this book. You got to write this book. And so then I thought, all right, I will only write this book if I can really understand deeply why. Why is it like this? How did it get like this? And more importantly, what can we do about it? Or is there anything to do about it? You know, should we all just give up and just, you know, I don't know, be busy until like we end up in the grave or, um, you know, I really wanted to, and I wanted to use my skills as a reporter to really see if I could look for real world examples and, and really understand systems and structures that have led us here. And so I wrote the book and I've got to tell you, it really changed my life. It led me directly to what I'm doing now. I left the post. I'm now a program director at New America. I direct something called the Better Life Lab. And that is exactly what we spend our time doing. Trying to figure out how do you change work? How do you change the way we look at gender and gender equality? How do you change public policy? How do you change workplace and corporate practice to really make life better? Because the thing that I learned in working on that book is that it can be better. 
that it doesn't have to be crazy and busy. And that there are a series of choices that we make as individuals, as communities, and and as businesses, and as a culture. And we could make different choices. Yeah. So let's get into some of this book. Obviously, you've touched on so many different topics, and we want to look at the big picture, the systems that are around us, how we got into this mess of being busy. Because when we think about progressing into the future, we think about things should be getting better. You know, most of us maybe are are making more money than we did maybe 10, 20 years ago. But do we have more free time? Do we have more leisure? These are things that economists long ago were, were saying, you know, we'll have so much free time in the future that we'll have to figure out what to do with all of it. But that part hasn't turned for us. We haven't really gained more of that. What's your feeling based on your research as to why we've, we've always chosen to go after more wealth and money versus more leisure and free time? That's such a good question. And, and really, you have to look at, just like you had said, you know, there was a time in the mid-20th century when all of the economists were saying, we're going to have this coming age of leisure. We're going to be so productive. We're going to have our basic needs met. We're, we're, you know, we'll be able to do our work and, you know, you know, a couple hours a week, we'll be able to retire at 38. We'll have all of this free time. What happened? So a couple things happened. If you start looking at what happened with wages, you know, you say that, that Americans uh, tend to choose money over time. Yes and no. Um, so you start looking at wages, you know, you say some of us are making more than we did 10 years ago. That's not true. It's not true of a lot of us. Um, I think this is the first generation that's not going to be doing better than their parents. If you look at larger tra- trends, productivity since the end of the Second World War has continued to increase on this, uh, on this, you know, pretty steep slope. But you look at what happened to wages. After the Second World War, for about two decades, wages and productivity rose in parallel. And then... St- Things started to change in the 1970s. You had much more of a financialization of the economy. We started to uh, value shareholder returns rather than investing in people and in communities. And, you know, the whole point of corporations and businesses began to change. You had more globalization. You had, um, you know... uh, jobs that went overseas. So it's starting in the 70s. Wages have really stagnated since then, even as productivity continues to decline. When people feel, I'm working so hard, but I'm not making it, there's a real reason for that. We've made choices as an economy, you know, uh, to, again, to prioritize shareholder value rather than uh, worker wages or uh, well-being. So that's one thing. And then the second thing I'll say is, you know, we are unlike a number of other advanced economies that have uh, a different social welfare system. You know, uh, there are com- uh, there are countries where um, you you pay into taxes, but then you get uh, health care. Then you get uh, you know uh, college education. You get a number of social welfare benefits. So the important thing to remember is that. We do not have those policies here. We don't have paid vacation policy. We don't have paid sick days policy. We don't have paid family and medical leave policy. Uh, we don't have universal health care. Uh, we've made choices over the years to leave them uh, to individuals to pay for. Uh, so we don't have the ability to pool our resources so that everybody gets well-being and these social welfare benefits. So in a sense, Americans have to prioritize money because they have to pay for more stuff. Um, uh, you know, there's been really interesting studies that show 
you know, uh, I think that in some circles and political circles, they'll say, oh, you know, those European countries, their taxes are so high and, you know, that's socialism and that's not the American way. And yet the studies show that the, the people in the United States pay about the same amount of money that the Swedes do for social welfare benefits. The difference is that the Swedes pool their resources. They pay it in taxes so that everybody gets these resources. And the difference is Americans pay individually out of pocket, which leads to some real inequities in terms of who gets access to well-being. So, so to understand why Americans don't have and don't value leisure, you really have to understand some of those larger economic underpinnings that in some ways we've set up our system in a way that makes it very difficult for Americans to prioritize time and leisure. Yeah, that's a very important point to bring in. And it's not just like we're all individually making these decisions that we, we're greedy, we want more money, but once we have right. to because of all these things. Yeah. Good, good. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, the best way you can support us is to leave a review in your favorite podcast app. Or better yet, start a conversation with a friend about how you think we can make work better. Thanks. So one of the themes in your book, you talk about the ideal worker. So tell us what you mean by the ideal worker and what corporations mean or, or companies when they say we want the ideal worker in this situation and why, why can they not find that person anymore? This is so important. And I think this is something that is so much more powerful than people realize. And I think it's something so important for corporations and workplaces to have awareness about. But uh, there's a lot of really interesting social science research about who do we value as workers and who do we reward, who do we promote, who do we, you know, who do we want to go for a beer with, who do we see, you know, who do we see has potential. And there's really good research that shows we tend to think that the best worker or the ideal worker, the one that we want to lead us, the one that we want to promote, the one that we're going to give the raise to, the promotion to, is somebody who has literally no caregiving responsibilities, is somebody who is work devoted, or some people call it work first, um, somebody who um, will come in early and stay late and be a presence in the office and answer emails at all hours and really have no life. Um, so, you know, when you think about that, there was a survey that it was a uh, managers and CEOs around the world and it asked who's the ideal worker and more than three fourths said somebody with no caregiving responsibilities. Well, so what does that do immediately? That puts pretty much every woman off the table and that you can't possibly compete as an ideal worker. Uh, and then there's other, you know, I think very troubling but interesting social science research that shows that even if you don't have caregiving responsibilities as a woman, there is an expectation that you should. And so that if you try to work as an ideal worker, that you somehow get punished for it. You don't get the same benefits as if a man did it. And on the flip side, if you are a man and you don't work like an ideal worker or this work devoted worker, and you want to say, do the childcare pickup, or you want to be more involved with your aging parent or have, you know, you have like, you want a life outside of work, um, that you actually are more punished for that. The expectation is if you're a man, that you should be this ideal worker. If you're a woman, we'll tolerate you, uh, but you can't be an ideal worker. And there's, it's still a very powerful uh, sort of a social norm that I think um, really drives a lot of unconscious bias, a lot of assumptions. And I think that it's really something people need to be um, to, to make uh, to become more aware of and, and, and begin to figure out how to address. So if we're talking to business leaders who can recognize that, yeah, I have that bias, like I when I hire somebody, 
I'm hiring for a job, but I hope that I get more out of them than I put into it, um, that they are going to be available for those times. What's a good way for those people to balance that bias out and to recognize when it's there? So it's really important. Everybody wants somebody who's going to be dedicated and committed and excited. And, you know, we use words like give 110% and go above and beyond. And I guess what I would say is there are ways that you can do that. Uh, There are ways that you can be excellent at what you do when you focus on what is the mission of the job. And unfortunately, uh, what the research shows is that we haven't figured out how to measure knowledge work. We don't have good metrics for when it's good, when it's enough, when it's done. And so we fall back on these older metrics that we used to use in a more industrial or factory age. We use presence. Oh, you're here. You must be doing a good job. Oh, you're here late. You must be doing an even better job. So we equate FaceTime and long hours with an ideal worker. When in a knowledge environment, those two factors really are meaningless. And so what I would say to to managers, to CEOs, to workers, is you've got to get clear on what it is that you, what is your mission? What is it? What is the point of the work? And focus on that and what makes it excellent and, you know, how much, you know, is enough and when are your deadlines? Focus on the performance and the output metrics, not so much on the input metrics. And then you'll have much more opening for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Let's talk about the diverse ways that people experience time. So you you mentioned, obviously, men and women have a very different way that they experience time as it's there. So tell us more about that. And then also, let's get into ideas about races, classes, generations. How do different people experience time in a different way that maybe we're not aware of? Well, it's interesting. So there has been research, a lot of really interesting research on gender differences in time. And again, this goes back to why it's so important to understand notions like the ideal worker or um, or notions like uh, the ideal mother, that these are these kind of cultural icons that are still very powerful and kind of and and can drive the way that we think. Uh, which which then drives our attitudes and assumptions about and even behaviors about other people. So it's interesting if, uh, you know, the, the example is, say, you have a family and they're sitting around the dinner table and they're eating dinner. Well, so the mom could be sitting there and feeling horrible. She can be feeling guilty. It's like, oh, my God, I was at work all day. I got home later than I wanted. You know, I didn't go to the honor society thing. I, I'm feeling like a failure because the ideal mother notion you know, is sort of making me feel the expectation is that I should be fully available and put my, I should be family first and put my family first. So the man, the dad can be sitting there and feeling awesome because, oh my God, you know, I'm here and I haven't been home for dinner in days. And aren't I amazing because I made it home for dinner? Because in his worldview, if you're supposed to be the ideal worker and the breadwinner, you're supposed to put first so that if you come home and you're there in in a family setting well then that time feels very different you feel like you've you've succeeded or you know it's a win whereas for for a mother with those kinds of cultural um uh, drivers you can feel like a failure so so it's it's fascinating and important to understand how our our notions of kind of quote unquote what's right and what the right roles are can really influence our experience of time. And then you talk about you know races and classes and generations, and I think generationally, what's so interesting is um, it, there's a, again a lot of evidence that. Uh, you know, we talk about, oh, you know, millennials and Gen Z, and they want more work-life balance. And you know what? 
it's true, but the surveys show that so did baby boomers and so did Gen X. Everybody, I mean, think about it. Everybody wants to live a good life. You want to do meaningful work. You want to have time for love and connection with your family. You want to have time for leisure. The difference is baby boomers didn't feel like they could get it. Gen Xers thought, well, baby boomers can't get it. I can't get it. So they kind of like slogged through and millennials and Gen Z are saying, forget it. I'm not going to do the same thing that you did. So they not only have a, have the same belief that work-life balance is, is, is the right way to go, but they have a very different sense of entitlement, which I think is positive that, that, that they're owed it or that that's the way you should live a good life. So their behavior is beginning to be different. And so companies are beginning to look at that and where this is important and what companies need to begin to kind of break that link between long hours and, you know, ideal workers and good work is that there's great research that shows that long hours, actually, the longer you work, the less productive you are. The longer you work, the less likely you are to have an innovative or creative idea. That there's neuroscience that shows that you get your best ideas when you're well-rested, you're in a positive mood, uh, and you're kind of in a spacey daydreamy mode. So businesses need to begin to recognize that you know, the ideal worker is on a path to burnout and is not going to get you productivity and is not ne- never going to get you the kind of innovation or creativity that we're going to need in this fast changing world. Yeah. We've talked with other guests, talked about four day work weeks. We've talked about shortening work hours, different things. Do you feel like businesses can lead the way in some of these conversations? Is that the right conversation to have? Well, businesses are the only ones that can lead the way. You know, changing the way we work is not something that government, that can come from government, nor should. You know, every business is different. Every, uh, you know, and that's what's beautiful about a dynamic capitalist system. You know, you've got the freedom to figure out what works for you. You've got an awful lot of uh, room to be dynamic and creative. So set your values and then experiment within there. You know, for some companies, absolutely a four-day work week could work. Uh, Other companies, Companies can try other, uh, you know, different models, but you have to think, what's your North Star? Where is it that you're going? And what are the values that you're putting in? And I would really argue that everyone needs to be putting in well-being, um, you know, worker well-being uh, in, into their equations, because then that that influences the kind of communities that we have, that influences uh, our, our, our country and our culture and an economy in much bigger ways. We need to be thinking... A lot of times companies are thinking, you know, shareholder value, and then they look at their labor budgets. And I'm thinking particularly for people who hire, you know, hourly or low-wage workers. And that's gotten us into this horrendous situation where so many hourly workers either are not getting enough money, uh, they're not paid enough to be able to uh, live well, they're not given enough hours to be able to, like, make ends meet. And companies need to realize that not only is that bad for workers and their workers' families and the precarity and stress that uh, both mental and psychological that comes from trying to live in that kind of disorganized time that you have no control over. It's actually bad for customers and it's bad for your business. And so when you when you look at the bigger picture, like you know, into the future, where do you want to go? How do you want to survive and not just survive but thrive? You know, workers and worker well-being are key to any of those any of those equations. Yeah, it's awesome. Bridget, I love this conversation. You've touched on so many topics that that are important. I'm thinking about one, how, how companies need to think about how they're rewarding employees, get, get beyond. We need to drop those ideas about uh, being paid just by time based on industrial revolution practices. Uh, we need to look at social systems in terms of even just gender differences, how men support women. 
in their own families, in the workplaces, those types of things are there. There's a lot of things to think through. I think time is, is one of the essential elements that we need to get right if we're going to really get to a better future of work. So I really appreciate your work. I appreciate your book. I hope you continue to advocate for this and, and come out. Where can people go to stay in touch with you? So I do a lot of writing. You can subscribe to our newsletter. We have the Your Life Better, uh, sort of the latest in um, work redesign, the future of work, gender, and social policy. And you can go to our website at the Better Life Lab. We have a number of reports. We just came out with a magic major report looking at the experience of men and caregiving. And I will tell you right now, if you want to really change some of those outdated breadwinner homemaker notions, the, uh, you know, you really want to move forward on productivity and gender equity. The most important thing we can do is support men taking uh, paid caregiving leave uh, because you'll never have more equity at work until you have better equity at home. And right now there's, it's, it's incredibly inequitable at home. So uh, better life lab website. I do have my own website, bridgetschulte.com. I'm on Twitter. Um, although not as often because I'm actually trying to be heads down and write the next project. All right. Well, that sounds exciting. Thanks so much for coming on the show and, and sharing what you know with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great talking to you. 